0: you delight to give you and the son and the spirit the highest praise and we delight in reflecting in our songs and in our words and in our lives the redemption that we have received from you the grace that we've received from you that grace which was granted us according to your eternal purpose in Christ Jesus that has now been manifested in the appearing of Christ has been Granted to us and is being granted to all those whom you call into union with your Son through faith and repentance. And so we pray as we gather that you would, by your Spirit and through your word and for your glory, shape and mold us in our thinking, renew our minds, transform us to reflect more and more the character of Christ encourage us in our walk with you and our sojourning with you in this world as we move and anticipate and wait to be with you in our heavenly home forever. To that end, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you will, to First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 5 through 7 this morning. Sorry if I'm looking a little weird. It's because we're trying to... Is the sound working? Okay, well, we'll use this mic again this week. Uh, Open up to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're in verses 5 through 7. First of all, let me say, uh, Michael and Teresa, it's good to have you back, if only for a week. Nice to see your faces again. We miss those smiles. Uh, Anyway, for those who remember Michael and Teresa... Uh, we come in again to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're moving on here uh, in verses 5 through 7 as Peter's giving us some final instructions about life in the church, about the way that we relate to one another, about the way that we fellowship with one another and we live out our lives together as we anticipate being with him in our heavenly home. And he addressed leaders in the first part of this section of chapter in verse 1, and now he's addressing uh, the body itself, all of us together. And he's doing so, he does here, by addressing or bringing to our attention the very important matter of humility, humility. If there's one thing that should mark a believer's life, it is humility, it is A right sense of ourselves before a holy God, a right sense of ourselves in light of the redemption of Jesus Christ and the salvation that we've received. Christians should be the most humble people on earth. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. But it should be the case. And it should be the case particularly for those who have a deep understanding of the sovereign grace of God in calling us to faith in his dear and beloved son. And because humility should mark the church of God and the people of God more than it marks anybody else, more, and stand, it should also stand in a stark contrast to the world. We should, we should uh, demonstrate a kind of love and a humility overall in our fellowship with one another that stands out to the world, that, that makes the world take notice. And this is especially true in our contemporary culture. And it's our contemporary culture... Because if there's one thing that defines our age, and this is true, of course, through any age in different ways and to different degrees, but if there's one thing that defines our age, it is a self-centeredness. It is a self-centeredness. It is pride. As a matter of fact, that's not only by accident, and that's not only by sort of the natural expression of our fallen humanity. It is, in fact, by design. It is, in fact, by intention of our very movers and shapers of culture in both the intellectual world and both in the entertainment world to promote the idea of pride. That came into our scene in more of our contemporary uh, past with the movement of self-esteem, the philosoph- or not the philosophical, the psychological bent or push towards self-esteem, which is defined by one as a person's belief regarding the degree to which he or she is worthy of praise. If there's one thing that defines our celebrities and our culture is that the individual themselves is worthy of praise, is worthy of praise. As a matter of fact, as I mentioned, self-esteem is a foundational truth or tenet or pillar of our modern culture and education. And we had discussed some of these things a while back in Sunday school as we introduced the idea of self-denial. One said this, related to the way that self-esteem as a philosophy, really, uh, has been introduced into our culture and education. Uh, This author says this, by the turn of the millennium, the self-esteem concept had spawned over 23,000 academic publications to become one of the top three topics in the whole of social psychology research. Can you imagine that, when that idea was Put out there, it took on like wildfire. The National Association for Self-Esteem, you probably didn't know there was a National Association for Self-Esteem, uh, says in its mission statement this, to fully integrate self-esteem into the fabric of American culture so that every individual, no matter what their age or background, experiences personal worth and happiness. That is a mission statement. It is an educational philosophy in secular education. It is what is wholeheartedly and with passion guiding curriculum in public schools. It gets worse. This then is no surprise that it has affected even the church and has infiltrated the church and reshaped the way that we think about the gospel. This author said all too often Christians appear to be limping along behind secular change rather than setting the pace in distinctive countercultural thought and our mindless piggybacking onto the self-esteem movement remains one of the most potent examples of our intellectual vulnerability to the latest thing. In other words, it doesn't stay outside of the church. And particularly as the church gets weaker in its own doctrine and understanding of the glories of redemption, it's more open to those things that are a threat to it, more open to other ideas, more open to the influence of the culture. And indeed, that has happened with the ideology of self-esteem. It has, in effect, reshaped the way that we think about the gospel. The gospel has become more about human significance than a high view of God That makes us self-abased. It directs the attention to us rather than back upwards to God. God is seen primarily in the benefits that he gives to us, not as glorious in himself. And that is the issue. He's seen primarily as good and gracious and loving and wonderful because of all the things that he does for us. Not because he is that in himself. Uh, This author goes on to say, we no longer want to sing, tell me the old, old story, but rather, let me tell you my story. Self-esteem ideology colonized the Christian world with the same absorption with self, my needs, my savior, my salvation, me, as everywhere else. And finally, the cross itself has turned into just another symbol of self-worth. Look how valuable that I am that Christ would die for me. Sound familiar? Sounds like a modern gospel. Doesn't God love us with such a passion that it took his son to the cross? That's how valuable we are. We must be worth saving. He goes on to say, We disapprove of the old should and should nots that impose such limits on choice and individuality. As part of this, we now take a more relaxed view of Sunday worship. Most growing churches today positively play to our culture's preference for informality and individuality. A radical shift from an ethic of self-denial to an ethic of self-fulfillment. The goals and means of one's ethics change from a God-centered to a human-centered orientation. Which is reflected as well in our fascination with celebrity and entertainment and all things glorious according to this world. In other words, these things have come into the church. And the gospel has become subtly more about us than it is about a glorious God who would rescue sinners from their own condemnation justly deserved. It becomes more about how amazing grace is because of what it tells us about our value rather than how it points us to the amazing grace of a God who would save one so deserving of condemnation. The gospel points to the glory of God. It points to the glory of Christ. It points to the wonder of the cross, and that's what we are to get lost in not to the glory and the wonder of ourselves. So that is the world in which we live, and all of us and most of us, most of the church, and certainly those who are a part of the American Western culture, have been infected by this to some degree or another. But standing against all of this is the gospel, and I would just note that's why the gospel is unintelligible to so many people. When it speaks of self-denial, when it speaks of human depravity, when it speaks of the need to be rescued from our own sin, that's unintelligible to many in our culture. It's downright offensive to many in the church. It'll make them angry. But that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is the reality of Christ. And now more than ever, Christians individually and the church should stand out then, as I mentioned before, as countercultural, as countercultural to the glory of Christ. And one way in which that counter-cultural reality is manifest in the church is through humility. A gospel-centered and grounded humility in which we look at the cross of Christ and we say that it shows his incredible goodness and mercy to us who deserve wrath. We look at the cross and we say it is a glorious display of the attributes and the wonder of God that we get to participate in and that our hearts respond to in worship and faith and obedience. And so the Holy Spirit calls us to that this morning in this passage. And the main idea here in Peter in these verses we'll look at is this, is that humility towards each other and God is the evidence of faith and it's at the heart of the experience of God's grace. Humility toward one another and toward God is the evidence of genuine faith and spiritual life. And it brings us into the experience of the grace of God. Let me read the passage and then we'll look at it. Beginning at verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him Because he cares for you. Let's notice our first point, which is found in verse 5, the beginning. And it is this. Humility toward leadership and one another is a command and not an option within the church. Humility toward leadership and one another is a command by God. It is not an option. Look at how he begins here in verse 5. He says, well it's actually in the middle, but he begins this verse with this little term that says likewise, likewise. And here's the logic. Here's the connection with what we looked at in the last couple few weeks related to elders. It is this. As elders submit to Christ in the task of shepherding his people, young men are to submit to elders and all are to live in humility with one another under the sovereign hand of a gracious God. Their submission marks every role when a leader is leading he is submitted to christ in service to those he leads when those who are led are being led they are doing so humbly to christ as to those he has put over them and everybody together is submitting to one another or acting towards one another with humility with a heart of humility just as with husband and wife parents and children, the workplace and civil authority, there are ordered relationships of authority and submission in the leadership and in the church. That's his first point. We've talked about some of that in the past. However, far from an environment in that kind of relationship of servility or severity, submission and authority among believers is an overflow of the gospel. It's marked, which is marked by sincere humility. So that kind of relationship to one another is an overflow of understanding the gospel of Christ. Let me, before we get into this first point more, let me just read this one quote that's worth repeating. It's in a book, a classic little book. It was written in the 80s, I think, the early 80s, by Andrew Murray called Humility. There's several good works on humility. This is one that's well known. Uh, But he says this in that book. Jesus Christ took the place and fulfilled the destiny of man by his life of perfect humility. His humility is our salvation. His salvation is our humility. And so the life of the saved ones, of the saints, must bear this stamp of deliverance from sin and full restoration to their original state. Their whole relationship to both God and man must be marked by an all-pervading humility. Without this, there can be no true abiding in God's presence or experience of his favor and the power of his spirit. With this, there can be no abiding faith or love or joy or strength. Humility is the only soil in which the graces root. The lack of humility is the sufficient explanation of every defect and failure. Humility is not so much a grace or virtue along with others, it is the root of all because it alone assumes the right attitude before God and allows Him as God to do all. In other words, humility is is the very lifeblood of a true understanding of the gospel. So let's look again at what he says here. You younger men, he begins, you younger men be subject to your elders. And so he addresses here then humility toward leadership. Humility toward leadership. And interestingly here, he singles out a particular group identified as younger men, younger men. He addresses them directly. Now, who are these younger men? There have been several suggestions. Some say they are recent converts. Actually, the word could be just translated younger, the younger to the elder. It could be then recent converts, some suggest. Others say it's younger members of the Christian community. Others say that it could be the remainder of the Christian community apart from the elders. So he's just referring to everybody else besides those who hold the office of elders. However, in context, the NASB and others got it right. It's It's best understood as referring to younger men, younger men among the body that he is addressing possibly younger men as those who were aspiring to the office of eldership or who had some position of leadership and wanted it to increase to hold the office of elder. That's very possible. But then why then, again, does he single out young men? And I don't think it takes a lot of thought for us to get why he would do that. It's most likely because this is the group that would be the most probable to chafe against the authority of the elders, the young men, the young men. Too often, and especially in our age, youth produces or encourages a kind of pride that lacks a sober view of self, a sober view of self and a proper subordination to authority. It's a natural tendency in young men particularly to overestimate personal ability and see authority as a kind of offense to them. A kind of hindrance to their own skills and their own ability to spread their wings, their own ideas, a threat to their own ambitions. They see authority sometimes in youth as an, simply an aim or an obstacle to overcome in order to prove themselves and in order to improve themselves superior to those set over them. That's a tendency in young men. Harnessed rightly and directed rightly, it can be a good thing to accomplish much. Let loose and wild and not brought into proper subjection. It can be a danger and a threat to what is good and what is harmonious. So there's a greater tendency towards the pride, toward pride in youth and young men that resists the idea of submission. It resists the idea of submission. And it is, of course, very often fueled, well, it is definitely fueled by pride. If there's one thing a proud person hates, is correction and instruction there's one thing a proud person hates is correction and instruction and that's what they are being called to submit themselves to by contrast a humble person invites those things and again this is especially true in our culture and with probably in in and in that it's not been in many ages there is a kind of disdain in our culture for the idea of authority There's a disdain for the idea of authority in the home. There's a disdain for the idea of authority and submission in the church. There's a disdain, particularly among the youth, for the idea of authority in the schools. A huge issue with public school teachers is that there is absolutely no respect in the classroom for the position of being an adult and of being an authority, of being a teacher, of having any kind of authority. That authority is now placed over to the students, essentially, who cannot be offended or cannot be thwarted and certainly cannot be punished for their bad behavior and for causing others to suffer because of it. So there's there's a kind of pride then that, that needs to be, that is promoted in our culture. Families certainly with young children can see it. If your children are out in the culture, how much you have to fight that. You establish authority in the home, and then every voice that they hear outside of the home is contradicting that idea. It's no surprise, then, that it makes its way into the church. The sense of the need to have a basic respect that flows from an understanding of our position, that there is an honor to age and position that is right and God-ordained, is anathema in the heart of many. I just—let uh, me just give you an example— Sometimes this is explicit. Uh, there's a song called, now, I never heard of this until yesterday. But uh, anyway, and it was just brought my way. I, I didn't intend to put it in here, but it, I ran across this. But, and it's a song called Proud by a group named Marshmallow or an individual. I'm not sure. <laughs> but <laughs> in either case, uh, here's, here's some of the lyrics. He goes, hold on. Hear me out. Empty rooms can be so loud. I just want to let you know I'm proud. I just want to let you know I'm proud. Close your eyes. Tune them out. You're right here with me now. I just want to let you know I'm proud. I just want to let you know I'm proud. And you're not going to believe me. You can look it up. There's nothing explicit in it. That's the song set to music. I'm proud. I'm proud. Another one says this. Pictures in my mind on replay. I'm going to touch the pain away. I know how to scream my own name, scream my name. Gonna love myself, no, I don't need nobody else, hey. Gonna love myself, no, I don't need nobody else, I love me. I tried to capture the lyrics there. <laughs> Thankfully, I didn't sing it. But let me tell you, if the kids are listening, and then that's the explicit way, and then it comes out in the subtle ways in everything. The subtle ways that the lyrics reflect how relationships are viewed, how sexuality is viewed, how authority is viewed. And if we think that somehow that's not shaping the thoughts and the attitudes of our children, we're wrong. If we think that we can somehow immerse ourselves in the culture and it doesn't affect us, then we're wrong, we're being deceived. It doesn't mean that one song is gonna all of a sudden change you around to be a proud person. But that is the constant message that is there and if we uncritically expose ourselves to that then we are going to find ourselves adopting attitudes that reflect the world much more than they reflect the gospel so then there is a subtle, self, subtle self-centeredness that runs through it all and again this is what runs exactly counter to the logic of heaven which says that the way up, the way to exaltation, the way to honor and glory is by self-denial, by lowering yourself, by service. It goes directly against the pursuit of righteousness, which is, as I just mentioned, to deny yourself, not to promote it. And our response to whether that's important or not, of course, depends on which kingdom is most important to us, the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God. Now, by contrast, then of the pride of youth, most often with age comes the experiences of life, the highs and the lows, the joys and the pains that shape us over time, successes and failures, observations of human nature and how life works. And particularly for a Christian, having walked with the Lord long enough to know the wiles and the deceptions of sin and the consequences of sin and disobedient and the remaining Principle of sin that still remains in us that needs constant vigilance to defeat, as well as the blessings of obedience and the wisdom that brings a greater humility, and generally speaking, less rebelliousness. And you see that, of course, respected even in Scripture. John 8, the woman, if you remember, caught in adultery, was brought, and Jesus said, Let the first of you without sin cast the first, or let you without sin cast the first stone. And what happened? John specifically states. And beginning with the eldest, they begin to leave one by one. Why did it begin with the oldest? Don't miss that comment. Because they, more than those who were in their youth still, understood that they were not without sin. They were not without sin. And so Peter in direct opposition to that kind of influence of our culture, that kind of influence says to these young men, says to those within the church, subject yourself to elders. Embrace the authority that God has established. Have this attitude of subjection and humility and submission. Gladly come under their role as spiritual leaders. And in fact, to learn this lesson is the first step toward wisdom. And the true development of character and discernment that's necessary to grow in spiritual maturity and to know God's favor. This is why Solomon instructed his son at the very opening of the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Read the proud person despises wisdom and instruction. The wise person embraces it. of course begins with the instruction of the Lord but it is as well the instruction of those that God places over us in life and in the church he says a gray head is a crown of glory it's found in the way of righteousness now when he says elder here though I want to be clear this is not elder in age he's referring to elder as an office which has already been made uh, clear by the context however there is even in this context to the elders the understanding, as further other instruction in the New Testament gives us, it's not to be a new convert. So while elders isn't here in age, it is to say it's somebody, though, who's walked long enough with the Lord to have learned a few things along the way. Who has spent enough time in the Word to understand it enough to be able to help someone else. And that those whom God has set them to help, they should receive it as such with humility, with humility. And know the blessing of God in it. And again, while he's addressing young men here, the point has application to the temptations of all of youth to authority, and really all of us. And so then he so he broadens it out to everybody. He addresses the young men in verse beginning of verse 5, but then he, he broadens that out, and he spreads that out to the entire church, and he says, not, but it's not just the younger men. He says, all of you, everybody who names the name of Christ, everybody in the body of Christ, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And again, this should be the basic reflection of our fellowship with each other, this humble attitude everybody who names the name of christ and why because that was the very mark of christ himself of his own life at the very heart of christ coming at the very heart of christ relating to the father at the very heart of christ relating to his disciples and to others was a heart of humility remember he said come to me all you're weary and heavy laden mentioned this many times you know it as a memory verse And he'll give rest to you. He says, come to me. He says, I am gentle and what? Humble in heart. I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. When he was with the disciples in the last, in the room, the upper room, the night he was going to be crucified, he took off the outer garments. He girded himself. And then he went around and he took the lowest position. And he says, you call me teacher and Lord. And he says, you're right, because I am your teacher and I am the Lord. And I do receive your worship, and I am the Messiah, and I am the Master. I am the one who is above all things, and I'm the one who served you. Therefore, learn from my example and serve one another. This has always been the evidence and the demonstration of true spiritual maturity in God's people, exemplified in Christ Himself. And He gives a beautiful picture. He says, Clothe yourselves with humility. Clothe yourselves with humility. It's something that we are to put on, like like clothes. But here's a tricky part. Here's the tricky part. Clothe yourselves with humility. That's something that we are to do. That's something that we are to be. And there's there's behavior that is reflected of that, reflective of that. And we can, that behavior can be something that is commanded. And it is a command about how we are to act toward one another with humility, that we are to act towards one another considering the needs of others as being more important than our own, being quick to serve, not to be served, being quick to forgive when we sin or somebody sins against us, being sincere in our concern for one another, engaged with people with an attitude of self-forgetfulness in our serving one another, So that can be commanded. However, in another sense, humility can't be commanded because it's an attitude. It's a disposition of the heart. It's an inward perspective of ourselves. That's where it has to begin. So we can do deeds of humility. We can show up. We can serve. We can take a certain position that's the lowest position. We can go around and wash feet. But humility is much more than an action, it's an attitude of heart. It's a way that we perceive ourselves. It's a way that we perceive others sincerely and honestly within ourselves. And that cannot be commanded. It is something that God must produce in us. It must be the fruit of a true experience and understanding of the gospel. It is, in fact, a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that the Spirit produces in His people. It comes from a life that is continually dealing with your own sin personally before the Lord sins of thought, sins of intention, sins of action, sins of attitude. As you begin to deal with your own sin, as you have the pattern of dealing with our own sin before the Lord, it has a humbling effect on us. The Spirit humbles us through that. We become more and more aware of our constant dependent on grace, more and more aware of our constant dependent on what Christ accomplished for us at the cross. As we study His Word, as we Read and we pray and we get to know Him and we exercise basic spiritual disciplines, we have a greater knowledge of God in Christ and that produces humility. So, in one sense, it's a command to be obeyed to be sure in how we act to one another, but in another sense, it's an attitude to be fostered and nurtured in a sincere pursuit of fellowship with Christ and the knowledge of Him. And what does it look like? Well, I think. There's a couple of definitions that's kind of stuck with me over the years. You've read some of these in books we've gone through together. One person described pride in this way. Uh, It is the the inner attitude that everything is from me, through me, and to me. Borrowing from Paul in Romans 11. And humility is just the opposite. It is from him, through him, and to him. To him belongs the glory. Uh, Another way you can think of the distinction between pride and humility that I find helpful is one is a self-preoccupation And the other is a self-forgetfulness. The proud person is preoccupied with self and inwardly. What do other people think? How is this going to reflect on me? How is this going to affect on me? How is this going to advantage me? How is this going to be a benefit to me? So on and so forth. The humble person is self-forgetful. It's not that you think so much, oh, I'm a bad person. I'm so low. I don't have any skills. That actually can be an expression of great pride because it's saying, I really want those things. I'm really kind of miserable because I'm not those things. It's still a preoccupation with self, but true humility is self-forgetful in its service to the other. It, It almost may forget what it does for someone else. It forgets. It has not a preoccupation with self, but a kind of forgetfulness of self in interacting with others and with people. And it's that kind of humility that produces the most sincere and delightful and beautiful kind of obedience to Christ and fellowship among his people. And it's also the kind of attitude that produces the most spiritual joy and unity within the body of Christ. So the first part of this, then, is that humility is a command, and it's a command to how we relate to leadership, and it's a command to how we relate to one another. Let's cover these other three points, and we'll go a little more quickly through them. Notice what he says next, and this is the second point. Humility is wise. Humility is wise because it invites God's favor, not his anger. And that's at the end of verse 5. 4, and so he's giving a reason here. He's grounding it, and he's saying, here's a reason you should be humble. Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the first reason we should pursue and be marked by humility is because it reflects the gospel. It reflects the life of Christ in us. And another reason, he adds, is because it is wise. It's wise. Pride incites God's opposition. Humility invites his grace. Pride incites his opposition, but humility invites his grace in our life. The clear point is this. It's foolish to be proud, and it's wise to be humble. It's foolish to be proud, and it's wise to be humble. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's look at the first part of that briefly. God is opposed to the proud. James makes, James makes the same point in James 4.6. He quotes from the same uh, passage where I'll mention in just a bit. And he, James quotes it as a part of a call to repentance to those within the church in which there are factions which there is division, which there is schism, which there is a friendliness with the world that places one in opposition with God, and he's calling them to humble themselves, resist the devil, and he again says in that context, because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Peter is using it in a slightly different way, but he quotes as well from Proverbs 3.34. That's where they're drawing this from. And If you were to read it in your Bible, going directly from the Hebrew, it would say this. Though he, God, speaking of God, scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. James and Peter are quoting from the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. Almost verbatim. They're using that. That would have been probably more readily uh, known to their audience. To the audience to whom they were writing the, the Septuagint. But in either case, the idea is the same. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this idea of opposed is a strong idea. It has has this kind of sense. It is to stand against someone or something. Stand against them. Be conflicted with them. And there's an idea, even a sense of being at enmity with them. God is opposed and in fact, it speaks of, this same term speaks of Jewish opposition and hostile rejection of the gospel in Acts 18.6. They were opposed to it. They hated it. They actively and forcefully and passionately resisted the gospel. And they persecuted those who brought it. That's in a negative sense. James uses the same idea here, opposed, in, a, in, a, in another place in his epistle. And he says this, that the righteous man does not resist... He does not resist. That's the same term. The wealthy who oppressed. Here it is this simple idea that as we relate to one another as the body of Christ, as we relate to leadership that God has put over us, as we relate to God under his providence, we are to do so with an attitude of humility. And if we do not, God is against us. He is against you, He is against the proud. Person, even of his own children. Proverbs 6 says this. Listen to how strongly he states it. I'll just read it to you. Verse 16 of Proverbs 6 There are six things which the Lord hates. He doesn't say that slightly disturb him or that bother him. God hates these things. He reacts with vehemence against them. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And what does he begin with in verse 17? Haughty eyes, that's the arrogant, the idea of arrogance. A lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that rapidly run to evil, a false witness who who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers, gossips. But he begins with a haughty eyes. He hates the proud person. He hates the pride. Thomas Watson, an old Puritan writer, said this, The proud man is the mark which God shoots at, and he never misses the mark. The proud man is the mark which God shoots at, and he never misses the mark. Here, Peter's probably focusing more just in the context of the attitude of pride that resists or balks at the idea, again, of God's established authority in the church and the attitude that promotes self rather than unity. He also has the idea here, there's a transition that he's making into another thought we'll look at in just a minute of those who are resistant to God's providence in their lives. Those who are resistant to God's providence. He's addressing, then, here that, as we noted, that inner attitude that God resists is that attitude that places self rather than God in his purposes and God in his people as first. It's speaking, acting with a consistent inner sense or intention or awareness of how it reflects on the individual rather than promoting unity and glory of God. And so God resists that attitude. It's exactly the opposite of Christ. It's exactly the opposite of what the gospel should produce. It's the exactly the opposite of that which promotes the glory of God. And God is jealous for his own glory. And as I noted, it's... It really, what fuels that then in this, the proud person that God opposes, it, it simply reflects that this person, or in our own hearts to the degree that we are proud, that we have not yet truly sensed who God is. We haven't yet truly sensed our smallness. We haven't yet truly sensed his holiness and been shocked with our own sin and how deep it runs. And we haven't been shocked then with the wonder and the amazement of grace One said this As believers, we sometimes have far too rosy a picture of our spiritual condition apart from Christ. That is a dangerous place to be because we will never appreciate the magnificence of what God has done for us in our salvation until we understand what the Bible says about us before our salvation. The proud person doesn't understand then the condition that God has told them they're in an enemy of God, condemned, guilty, helpless, dead, darkened, blind, foolish. Hardened. when we get that's truly a nature that's a picture of us that's our reality of us before grace then we wouldn't be proud we wouldn't be proud but we who do get it he says next god gives grace though to the humble he resists the proud person he is against them he stands against them he is aiming at them his judgments and his humbling providences are directed towards them he gives them his full attention of resistance But the person who is humble, he gives grace. He gives grace. And that's what we want, is grace. You know, I've mentioned this in the past, but it's helpful to me. Hopefully it's helpful to you. Grace is sometimes defined as God's goodness to those who don't deserve it. Right? You hear things like that. God being good to those who don't deserve it. And that's true, and that's that's a common definition. But a better one, which I borrowed, but I think better captures it it's not god's grace simply to those who don't deserve it there's something in my mind anyway benign about that something kind of weak and soft it is rather this idea god's grace is his goodness to those who deserve wrath in other words we have earned something we have provoked something from god and that's wrath of our sin and instead of giving us that grace is he shows us goodness he gives us his son he gives us mercy he showers us with kindness that's grace. That's grace. And that's a bit more humbling, I think, than the other definition. But when we get that, God is overwhelming in his grace. He's overwhelming in his abundant goodness and favor to us in Christ. He's overwhelming in the way that he cares and shepherds and expresses his love to those who are his children. And indeed, the entirety of our life as a Christian is encompassed in that grace. That grace that God has shown to us. Matter of fact, Peter has repeated this many and many times. I think it's like 12 times just in 1 the, the Peter, Peter itself. He mentions this idea of grace. Don't just fall, listen as I just remind us of some of these. In verse 2 of chapter 1, he began with this common uh, request to the church. He writes, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. In other words, he's writing saying, I want you to know this full experience of grace. I want you to know the full peace of God, even in your circumstances. I want you to know his abundant goodness to you in Christ Jesus. And I'm writing to you in part so that you will know that and so you will experience it. And so you will have that as a part of your own walk with him. In verse 10, he reminds us that we now stand in a fullness of grace that was only anticipated by the prophets. As they prophesied, he said, of the grace that was to come to you that now we realize in the appearing of Jesus Christ. In verse 13, he tells us to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is to think not merely of the grace that he has accomplished for us, not merely of the grace that was anticipated and now revealed, but the grace that's going to be ours in the full experience of our salvation at his return. In chapter 2, he encourages us to obedience, even when treated wrongly with the reminder that such obedient faith, he says, finds grace or favor with God. It finds grace with God. When we learn to yield ourselves to him, it invites his blessing. In chapter 3, he exhorts husbands to live with their wives in an understanding uh, way because you both are heirs of the grace of life. And there I would take that as the grace of life is that you both share in the life of Christ and God's grace in him. You treat them as a fellow heir. You're both heirs of this. You both have this experience, this saving reality of God's grace in your life, and you are to treat one another consistent with that. And even so much, it's important that God says otherwise, husbands, your prayers will be hindered. In chapter 4, he teaches us that our different abilities and spiritual abilities and opportunities to serve each other are spirit-endowed and spirit-empowered expressions of his grace, he says, to build up the body in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. In 5.10, he says this, he says, it's the God of all grace who will call you into his eternal glory in Christ and will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And he ends his letter by saying this, and this is the true grace of God in verse 12. Grace defines everything about our life. The grace we've received, the grace we live in, the grace that was promised, the grace that we have, the grace that's in the future. God is a God of all grace. The, entire, the entirety of our very existence and reality for a believer is that God has shown us grace and we live in grace and we function in grace and we're to grow in grace and the knowledge of him, Peter will say in his second epistle. It's grace. We live in the fact that we have received from God goodness in place of our sin. We have received from him kindness instead of what we justly deserve. We have received from him fatherly love and care in place of rejection, which our sin should have brought. We've received from him mercy. So the grace of God defines the believer's life from our hope in the future, From beginning to end, we are marked by grace. It is by grace we've been called into fellowship with. It is in the fullness of saving grace that we stand in Christ. It's the full experience of this grace of salvation that we long for and press on towards. It is this grace, by this grace, we know the deepening and full experience of his mercy as we walk with him in trust and obedience. So the main idea is simple. It's wise to be humble. It's foolish to be proud right? Who would want to give all of that up to pursue our own way? That's the idea. If you're saying that's kind of a ridiculous scenario, we do it. I'm probably the chief culprit of that who needs to be corrected by the Lord. We all do that too often. We all do that, but Peter here says, be wise, be wise. If you're going to walk in pride, if you're going to walk in unforgiveness, if you're going to reject authority, if you're going to walk in pride against God's commands and not yield to him and submit to him, then expect his resistance. Don't bow your head in prayer while your heart is proud and lifted up, but to the one who is humbled, know that the fullest experience of his goodness awaits at the door. And he notes next then, humility then, trust in God's providence and promises so be wise don't be foolish walk in humility and here's a way that that's done not only with one another not only towards leadership but towards god he says therefore he's applying this even more he's pushing in he says therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of god that he may exalt you at the proper time humble yourself under the mighty hand of god that is to say The humble person trusts in God's providence and his promises. It trusts in his providence and his promises. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. First, recognize that God is in control of your circumstances. He's in control of your circumstances. What peace that brings to us when we can fully get that. What peace that brings. We have circumstances that test us and try us and that cause fear in us all the time. This is an unpredictable world. It's a hostile world, and things happen that cause us to fear. And the more that we are rested, not at some point in the future, but the real growth and maturity is in the moment. In the moment, we are rested and confident in the sovereignty of God that we are living under his mighty hand. Then there's joy that can come with that. So he's speaking here, then the obedience and trust of faith. Bring your heart and your thinking into submission to God's chastening. Remember the context here is he's writing to those who are suffering. Bring your heart and thinking into submission to God's chastening and shaping providence, even when you suffer mysteriously for righteousness. But, of course, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's not the kind of trust in providences that only, or God's providence, that comes only when we're suffering for righteousness. It is the entirety of life. And then when the suffering comes and the trials come, we're ready for it. We're ready for it because our heart has been trained. The mighty hand of God here is a reference to his sovereign power, his control over all things, even the suffering. Again, they were enduring. It's to live under the sovereign rule of God. Oh, there's so many places here, but you think of Genesis 50-20. It's to live that attitude of Joseph. We repeat it a lot, but it's so profoundly wonderful. He looked back at his life. He looked back at the difficulties. His brothers came and were afraid now that their father had died, that he was going to turn on them, that he had such power and authority in Egypt. And Joseph said, who am I? I'm not in the place of God. What you meant for evil, and you did mean evil against me, and you did do evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about this present result, to spare many lives to protect their own nation or that would grow into a nation. In other words, God was doing something good, even though you were doing something evil. It was an example of living under the mighty hand of God, the mighty hand of God. And as we were able to do that and yield to him and endure by faith, particularly when there are those difficult, again, providences of God that are so mysterious and that leave us confused or unsure about the future, when we learn to trust him there, God gives us grace. God provides for us the ability to have a refuge, an inner refuge and comfort that we can find nowhere else. And in vain do people try to find it somewhere else and it always comes up empty. It always comes up empty. We're not going to find it in circumstances. We're not going to find it in people. We're not going to find it in accomplishments. It is the kind of peace. It is the kind of trust. It is the kind of steadfastness of heart that comes from faith in God. Faith in God, to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. And it is the assurance that God has something greater in the future. Look at the second part. Under his mighty hand, in order that he may exalt you in the proper time. In order that he may exalt you in the proper time. I think when I read that at first as I was going through this, I was reminded of Psalm 35 where he says this, that his anger is but for his moment. Moment. But his favor lasts for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy will come in the morning. Now there the psalmist is referring to in context God's chastening for them as a nation. But the assurance that they're still in his covenant favor and that there will be a restoration to them. God will be gracious to them again. But the broader point that he's making here in in the psalmist that connects with here is that this, there is a time when there are the hard providences of God that test us and shape us. There is a time when there is the difficulty that he brings into our life, but the end of it is that his promises are true and he will restore. Now, Some say that he'll exalt you at the proper time to refer to the kind of exaltation that will come in this life. In other words, keep bearing on and you'll be proven right. But that's not what he means here. The context here is in the future. Sometimes things are never put right in this world they're never put right and justice seems to have its way all the way to the very end in some people's lives but the promise and the hope of god's people is that as i humbly trust him now which may or may not turn out in a good way i can still have the peace and i can still have the inner patience and unconflicted discord in my life in my heart because He will, in his own time, in his own way, bring about his promise. He'll bring about his promise. And so there's hope. There's hope. That's the whole point of 1 Peter, isn't it? He's pointing us to our hope. That's the whole theology of hope that he began the epistle with. While we may be brought low in this world before men, we will be lifted and exalted in Christ as citizens of his kingdom and participants and sharers in his glory. Paul tells that to the church at Thessalonica when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believe. You're suffering now, but when he returns, you will be marveled at. Or he will be marveled at by all who believe, and you will be shown to be on his side. Trophies of his grace. And that's the promise that we have. It's the promise that fueled Jesus' own life. That's how he endured the cross, for the joy set before him. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, all the shame of it. Why? Because the Father would exalt him in the proper time. Every knee would bow to him. Every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he knew that so he could endure the cross. So while they're mocking, while he's bearing the shame, he is in his deepest part, in his deepest attitude of obedience to the Father and being our mediator, knew the end of this is going to be exaltation. The glory of the Father. He referred to His coming cross as how He would glorify the Father. And so we have that, or should have that, or seek to have that same attitude as well. It may be shame and weeping now. It may be difficulties now. But we live by the promise of God. We live by His faithfulness to the covenant. We live by the assurance and the certainty of what He has done for us in Christ and what He will do for us in Christ in the future. And so we're not trapped and get caught up, hopefully, in the passing and the fading glories of this world. We don't want the world's approval. We want God's approval. We don't want the world's exaltation. We want God to exalt us. And at the heart of all of that, and I'll just mention this, is that, and this is the last, is that humility rests in the goodness and the grace and the care of the Father. Look what he says then here. Casting all your cares and anxieties on him, we casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. This is, first of all, an unrestrained invitation, casting all your cares upon him. This is such a tender word from God. He even invites and he commands us to take all of our burdens of our soul and our fears in these difficult providences, in our struggles, and push them off of ourselves and push them on to him. You can write it down. I won't turn there. This is reflecting David's statement in Psalm 55, 22. What are we to give to God? All of our cares, all of our worries, all of those things that cause us anxiety. It's interesting. He uses this word four times in the Gospels. Each time he refers to those circumstances in life that choke out the word, that make it unfruitful. He uses it one time to refer to those cares that make one distracted from holiness and unprepared for the Lord at his return. Luke 21, 34. You can look it up. Paul uses it to speak of the kind of burden that he felt for the churches. But here, Peter is simply saying it's putting it in the broadest category and saying all of those things that weigh us down and cause us to fear and cause us to doubt and cause us to want to not persevere. All of those burdens of life that are too heavy for us, we are to lift onto him. The loads that we cannot carry, he will carry for us and he tells us to put it on him. He tells us to put it on him. This idea of casting is throwing and tossing on. So the disciples, when they threw their garments on the donkey that Jesus sat in, is the way that he, exact form of the same word. It's the idea of just casting on and pushing off to, putting it all on to God. And it's a powerful picture here. It's cast and throw off all of our worries and place them on him, place the responsibility of them on him and the outcome of them on him, which is the safest place to be. And we can do it because he cares for us. He's not distant. He's not unconcerned. He cares for us. And so we can do that in prayer. Well, we need to come to the table, but let me just make this note here: is so often we, 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 we are more open and detailed with our friends or girlfriends, speaking of girls together, uh, and guy friends or whatever than we are with God. We give God some vague, short, general kind of prayer, God, make things better or fix this. And then we go talk to our friends and we get really detailed and we get really specific. It should never be that way. That's how we're to approach God. He cares for us. He knows them. We should be before God, laying out our soul in every detail, every uh, specificity, every, every worry, every fear to the deepest level at which we can know ourselves. That should all be laid before God. It should be taken to him as our father because he cares for us. He knows he's working. He wants us to come to him. He gives us and he wants us to have loads that are too heavy to bear so that we will ask him to bear it for us. That's how faith is increased. He's glorified in that, he's honored in that. And so we should take all of these things to him in prayer. He knows, David said, You know, such mundane things as when I rise up and when I sit down. He says, All your thoughts to me, they're so numerous, I can't even count them, they're overwhelming. And those are the things that we should take before him. And so a tender, tender promise of how we are to be humble towards one another and how we are to walk in humility toward God. It's a reflection of the gospel. It's a reflection of our understanding of Christ. And it's a reflection of our hope in him and our understanding of the kind and the generous and the gracious and the caring nature of God for his own. And we celebrate that in the table this morning. So let me pray and the men will come forward and hand out the elements. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness, your goodness. Help us to, Holy Spirit, be uh, made seen. In other words, that we would see more clearly the wonders of grace you've shown to us in Christ. Help us to walk with trust and obedience as we sing so often in light of your good and gracious providences. And conform us to the image of our dear Lord. And even now, as we come to you at this table, let our meditations be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Help us to come to you with honest and sincere hearts and with hearts of worship to your dear and beloved son. In his name we pray.